men of our church in two Saturdays on February the 18th. Uh, we will have a time together uh, in the morning on that Saturday where we're going to challenge you to lead in your home and in our church. So let me just place the expectation before us. Men, we not just want you to be there. I will use this term. We, we expect that unless you are just providentially hindered, you will be there. Uh, last year when we hosted a women's conference, uh, Lord willing, we will host another one of those later this year. I said the same thing. I will say it now just in reverse. Uh, wives, make it possible for your husbands to come. Do what you need to do to make it possible for your husbands to come, but I'll give them that same challenge if uh, in God's providence we're able to host our women's conference later this year, uh, I will challenge them to do the same thing. We'll have a big breakfast and we're gonna challenge you to do just those two things. Pastor Jay is gonna talk to you about what does it mean to lead in your home? And I'm gonna talk to you about what does it mean to lead in our church? We recognize that not every man in this church will serve as an elder or serve as a deacon or maybe lead a small group, but every one of us can lead in some way. And we believe this. So we want to have you here in two weekends. What you can do, it's free, entirely free. You're going to get a big breakfast. You're going to get encouraged in the word. You're not going to get beat up. You're going to get encouraged. And you're going to leave with some resources to help you to kind of do this and think through this on your own or maybe in, in small groups of other men that you would gather with after the conference. Uh, but we need you to sign up for it. Many of you already have. We have a great list of you already signed up uh, for this event. Uh, if you're not, there's instructions in the connector about how you could do that online. Even right now, you could do that or by going to the connect desk or sorry, to the information desk uh, and signing up there. And all that is just to make sure that we have enough resources uh, and honestly enough food to be able to feed all of us on that Saturday morning. So I hope that you have already made plans. And if not, that you will now make plans to be with us uh, on the 18th. I'll invite you now to take your copy of God's word and turn to Mark chapter 12. We're continuing here in our series where we have slowed down substantially uh, as we've gotten to the last week of Jesus's life, and we will consider verses 18 through 27. This morning, I'll invite you to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word together. Mark records for us, and the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, said, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let's pray together. 
Father, we thank you as we have already prayed during our time of elder prayer for the gathered body of saints here at Nansman River Baptist Church. Oh, what an encouragement it is to sing to one another praises unto you to be with our family in this place. And God, as we have professed in many ways already this morning in song and this reading of scripture and the proclaimed word in a moment, we stand here longing, longing for the day that our faith becomes sight as you have promised us, as we sang, that we too will rise. Lord, would you place that longing in our hearts as we are all so susceptible to placing other idols in the way of looking to the return of Jesus. Father, instruct us now in your word. Draw us in love towards your son, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning's sermon is entitled simply The Question of Resurrection because that's what this is. It isn't a question of marriage, although I will deal with marriage some this morning. This is at its core a question of resurrection. Now, I'll be honest with you. We had a gymnastics meet yesterday and about four hours away, and so we've spent a lot of time driving. And part of that time uh, driving, listening, of course, to classical rock on the radio, I was off... As you know me well. Um, I was thinking about how in the world can I integrate some kind of opening illustration about a spy satellite balloon thing flying overhead? Well, I couldn't, but I thought I'd make the joke anyway. <laughs> this, is, this is our subject this morning it is resurrection. And with the help of some skeptical Sadducees, who I'll explain to you who they are in a moment, we're going to, I hope, look longingly towards a reality, not a possibility. I want to make this clear from the outset, that what I am talking about today, what we are seeing in Scripture, is not some future possibility, but is a future reality. The reality of the resurrection is as sure as you and I are in this room today. Now, we speak of it in hope, but not a hope that questions. A hope that fills our hearts, hopefully, with joy, longing for the return of Jesus that brings the resurrection of the dead. The main idea of today's sermon is the reality of a future resurrection of the dead changes everything. The Sadducees are going to come to Jesus here on this Tuesday of the last week of his ministry before going to the cross, seeking as the Pharisees and Herodians had done previously, and as the scribes will do, we will see next week, seeking to trip Jesus in their perceived wisdom by asking a question that they believe is ridiculous. But they think they're going to trap him. 
And Jesus uses, just as he used the, the, the question last week from the Pharisees and the Herodians seeking to trap Jesus to teach about something of eternal importance, Jesus is going to do the same. They're asking a question about marriage and the eternal state, and Jesus is going to use this to instruct them about how they are wrong about the resurrection. Because as Mark tells us, the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. Verse 18 tells us that. They say there is no resurrection. So who is this group this, that is only in the gospel of Mark? They are named in other gospels. We see other things about them in other uh, gospel accounts. But in the gospel of Mark, they're only named once. This is it. This is the only place they show up. Who, who are these people? These are the wealthy and the powerful in Jerusalem. Now, those who have been challenging Jesus, the Pharisees, the Herodians, now the Sadducees, eventually the scribes, these are all, I've referred to them throughout as the religious elite, and they all are. But even amongst the religious elite, just like in our day with the political elite, there are parties, there are factions. And this was true in Jesus's day. There were numerous factions that believed different things and exercised their power in different ways. The Sadducees were the most wealthy of them. And you could argue, even though they were a much smaller group than the Pharisees, they were much more powerful because they controlled the temple. They are, the Sadducees were, the high priestly clan. The high priests, there wasn't just one high priest of Israel. It kind of rotated. And in Jesus' day, it really rotated amongst only one family. So one man would be the high priest, and then his son-in-law became the high priest, and then his brother became the high priest, and then it would kind of come back to him. These were all, though, Sadducees. They controlled, even though they were the minority, they controlled the temple because they controlled Jerusalem, and they were the closest tied to Rome. They were the most invested in the status quo because their wealth was gained from it. They were, as from a biblical perspective, the ones who questioned almost everything that the Pharisees taught. They questioned what was known as the oral tradition, that the Pharisees held to be true and taught in the synagogues. The Sadducees rejected nearly all of it. They only believed that the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we know this as the Pentateuch, the, the strictest version of the Torah, the Hebrew Bible, we call it the Old Testament, the, book of, the books of Moses traditionally held, both within Hebrew culture and within um, Christianity, that Moses writes these first five books for us. And the Sadducees only gave credibility to those five books. They did not listen to the rest of what we would call the Old Testament, nor the oral tradition of the Pharisees. And they did not believe in things like resurrection or angels or demons. And some would say even an afterlife. Now, there is some debate on whether Sadducees actually believed in the afterlife, one of the reasons that there is some debate around this is because we really don't know much as much about them as we do the Pharisees. Because in 70 AD, when the temple is destroyed, so is the Sadducees. This party within uh, Hebrew culture it ceases to exist some 2,000 years ago. And the oral tradition that was carried on by the Pharisees in the synagogues 
spreads not only in Israel but throughout the Roman world and in many ways still exists in places today. But not so with the Sadducees. They, they ceased really to exist. And so we're, we're reliant on what the scriptures tell us and what some other historians tell us to be true about what they believe. But we know that they did not believe in a resurrection. They put no hope in the resurrection of the dead. And it is on this subject that they seek to question Jesus. And Jesus is going to use their question to show them that resurrection is not only a reality, but because it is a reality, it must change everything for us. And their question, which is about marriage, so important in Jewish culture and should be in Christian culture, helps us to see just how important the resurrection truly is. We'll see this in two parts today. First, temporal institutions like marriage will not continue after the resurrection. Let's look back at their question. Mark tells us the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. They asked him this question. So following on the heels of their political rivals, the Pharisees and the Herodians, getting shot down by Jesus with their, ta- their question about taxes, now the Sadducees step up and they're like, oh, we're going to get... Not only are we going to get him, but we're going to get them because they disagreed with the Pharisees on almost everything, but certainly on the resurrection. And he said, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take uh, the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So what is being described here is known as Levite marriage. It is the, the traditional position of the law. It was prescribed to us by Moses, prescribed to them by Moses, uh, that if a man dies with no children, leaving no offspring, that it was the responsibility of his brother to take his wife and to have children uh, for his uh, deceased brother. And so then they posed this hypothetical question. There were seven brothers The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife shall she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Now, we need to view this as a, uh, not only a rhetorical question, but one that the Pharisees, one that the Sadducees see as at least somewhat ridiculous, They are intentionally asking a question that they know is not not reality. This is not a true question. It is a rhetorical question. Here's one of the places that we know that this is a rhetorical question is because there is really no evidence, nor is no historical evidence, that that, that the Jewish people, not only in Jesus' day, but historically the Jewish people obeyed Deuteronomy 25, which is where we get Moses giving instruction about Levite marriage. So can I read that for us just so you can hear what Moses is saying and what the Sadducees are looking back on? Moses says this in Deuteronomy 25. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother. That is, the name may not be blotted out of Israel. 
And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my, my, my husband's brother refuses to uh, perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. I could have stopped reading a few verses ago, but I just like this part. All right. Spit in his face, and she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who's had his sandal pulled off. Thank you, Moses, because this is fantastic. So uh, the reason I really, I, I do, I, it, for us, it's kind of common, like he's spitting in his face, and now the guy's house is going to be renamed the house of him who's had his sandal pulled off. But I wanted to read it all because it does show us just how serious the law took this. And for this reason, that the man's name would not be blotted out in Israel, that, that, the, that his family line would continue through his brother. But there's really no historical evidence that Israel practiced Deuteronomy 25. Now, maybe it was practiced in uh, some circumstances, but there's really no evidence that it was at least widespread. So the, the Sadducees come to Jesus and they pose a question about a law that is either not kept or very rarely kept among the people. And then they multiply it really by seven, right? They, they take it to its extreme. And they're like, he, the second brother dies, then the third brother dies, all the way to the seventh. All seven of these brothers. I don't know what this woman's putting in the food. But I, by the time you get to that seventh brother, I don't think I'm marrying her. But this is what they do, right? They, 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 they really make this ridiculous rhetorical question. Number one, because they didn't really practice this law. And number two, they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. So they want to make it sound as ridiculous as possible. But they're asking an important question not just an eternally important question, which we're going to get to the resurrection in a moment. They're asking a, an important question about the temporal, about marriage. And marriage is important. Don't hear what Jesus has to say about marriage in the eternal state to think somehow that marriage isn't important in the here and now. Marriage is very important. We say in our core values as a church that marriage between one man and one woman for life is the cornerstone of God's design for the family and that the family is the foundational institution of human society. When we looked at human society last week as it related to government, and we went all the way back to the beginning to see that God had established mankind to rule over the world and that we really do that through governments. But before that, remember, he gave a charge to man and woman to be fruitful and to multiply. Jesus, talking about marriage in Mark chapter 10, goes all the way back to creation himself and his teachings. He says that in the, from the beginning... God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Marriage matters. 
It, it matters. And so Jesus isn't being dismissive of marriage, even though the Pharisee, or sorry, the Sadducees somewhat are. The Sadducees are making up this ridiculous scenario, but Jesus considers marriage to be important, but not eternally so. It, it, marriage matters now. Marriage is a, an institution that God established from the beginning for now, but after the resurrection, in the eternal state, what we call heaven, marriage won't be the same as it is now. It won't matter like it does now. And this is what Jesus is going to say to them. Now, verse 24, tells how, Jesus tells the Sadducees how they missed the answer, which I'm going to consider in the next section. So if you would, jump with me to verse 25. And let's see what the right answer is before we see why they missed it. He says in verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Jesus is using the opportunity presented to him by the Sadducees, taking this important right cornerstone of human society, family and marriage question from the Sadducees. And he's going to use it to show just how radically things will change in the resurrection. Because if the resurrection changes marriage, then the resurrection changes everything. If marriage is the cornerstone of human society and resurrection changes that, and everything changes because of marriage. So many things will be different after the resurrection. Our priorities will be straight. We, we won't be tempted towards idolatry. In the resurrection, we will see Jesus fully. We will be in body like Jesus, resurrected bodies. We'll experience things differently. Paul writes about this this transition from how we are now to how things will one day be in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. We'll know love in a way in the resurrection that transcends earthly relationships. Even marriage is cornerstone. Even marriage which is good and elsewhere in the New Testament is a picture of the gospel for us, doesn't need to exist anymore because we go from seeing things dimly to seeing things clearly. We go from seeing things like a child to seeing things like a full-grown adult. We are able to see in full. Now, here's what we recognize. We recognize that for some of you, you sit here today and there's a little sadness in your heart when you hear that Jesus say, we won't be married in heaven. Now, for some of you, there's not sadness in your heart and that's probably maybe a little different of a sermon, okay? I'm not gonna look at my wife as I say that. 
She may be nodding. But there, there may be a little, so you think, well, I love this person. I mean, there are people in this room that have been married. We have one couple just got married a couple weeks ago. There are other people in this room been married less than a year, right? Year or two, and it's still very much in the honeymoon phase, you know? Others of you, though, that are far into that, you've been married 50, 60 years to the glory of God. How incredible is that? You can't imagine life without this person. You can't imagine what the resurrection will be without them being married. And maybe this causes a little bit of sadness in your heart. Maybe it's, and all these years in youth ministry, right? We know what these kids were saying when they would say this. They're like, man, I really, you know, look forward to Jesus returning, but I hope I get married first. We know what they were saying. Teenagers, we know what you're saying, okay? <laughs> we get it. But why do we, why do we, why does that cause a little bit of anxiety for us, a little bit of sadness in our hearts? It's because we, we experience love in marriage, hopefully in a good, godly, Christ-centered marriage. We experience love more fully in that relationship than in any, earthly, any other earthly relationship. And it's good. And so we can't imagine not having it elsewhere. We can't imagine it not existing after the resurrection. But Jesus says it won't need to exist after the resurrection. Because we'll experience things differently. So it's like I prayed at the beginning. Our temptation is always to, to idolize things of this world and to replace what God has set in our heart with temporal things. And Jesus is kind of helping to set us that, help us set that in order for us. If we go to how John writes uh, it, it, to, uh, to the seven churches in the Revelation, he writes one to, to the church of Ephesus. And he says in Revelation 2, 4 to them, he says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. And this is the temptation that we run, to fall in love with Jesus, the moment of our salvation, but then to slowly allow the world to continue to put other things, even good things, in the place of Jesus, abandoning our first love. But when we get to the resurrection, in the eternal state, we won't have that temptation. We won't, we won't be tempted to abandon our first love because our first love is going to be there with us, Jesus. Now, we may think this, again, sounds very spiritual and hopeful, yet at the same time disappointing because we love our spouse or we love those pleasures of the flesh that God has called good for this time, and we question how in the world can eternity exist without it? Let me read a couple of quotes from you. Both of these are from guys named uh, with the last name of Edwards, one of them Edwards a long time ago and one of them an Edwards now. Jonathan Edwards from a long time ago says that after the resurrection, the glorified spiritual bodies of the saints shall be filled with pleasures of the most exquisite kind that such refined bodies are capable of. The sweetness and pleasure that shall be in the mind shall put the spirits of the body into such a motion as shall cause a sweet sensation throughout the body infinitely excelling any sensual pleasure here. To paraphrase Edwards, heaven's going to be a lot better than earth. Now, we may not be able to understand that right now, but it will be. James Edwards, a contemporary who wrote a book, on, or wrote a commentary on the gospel of Mark, in that commentary says, present earthly experience is entirely insufficient to forecast divine heavenly realities. We can no more imagine heavenly existence 
than an infant in utero can imagine a Beethoven piano concerto or the Grand Canyon at sunset. I listened to this week of Pastor Mark Dever preaching this sermon and he, he used this illustration. He said, it's, it would be like a toddler knowing that their daddy goes off to work every day, but that toddler trying to imagine or explain what dad does at work every day. That child can't no more understand what it is that their father does when he goes off at work. He just knows that it's a reality. And that's how we relate with the eternal state. We can't understand why there wouldn't be marriage. We can't understand what our bodies are gonna be like. We can't understand what the new heaven and the new earth are gonna be like because we are like toddlers. But one day, We'll experience it, and it'll be far greater than anything we know here in this world. Now, I want to, just for a moment, explain something in verse 25, where Jesus says, but they are like the angels. I want to stress a word here that we are like the angels in the eternal state who are not married. We do not become angels in the eternal state. Let's, quickly, let's just quickly see why that distinction matters. It matters for us. Because the angels and humans are created distinctly different. And one of those things is created better than the other. And it is humanity. We outrank the angels. Let me show you two places. First, 1 Peter 1 verse 12. Peter says, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. He's talking about Old Testament saints. In the things that have now been announced to you, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, he's talking about the gospel, things into which angels long to look. Angels do not experience the gospel. Jesus didn't die for angels. He died for you. Number two, we will sit in judgment over angels. First Corinthians 6, Paul's talking about not taking fellow Christians within the church to civil courts because the church ought to be able to decide these matters together. And he, he relies on this fact. He says in verse 3, do you not know that we are to judge angels? Now, I have no idea. Again, toddler looking at daddy going to work. I have no idea what that's going to look like for the church to sit in judgment over angels, but it matters to the way that we think about our eternal state. We are not going to become angels. We're higher than angels. So could I ask you to do something? The place where I hear the place where I hear the the the, the worst theology is standing with a family as people come through a receiving line at a funeral. People say, and sometimes it's because people aren't of the church and they don't know better, but people say some of the worst stuff in those moments. Not only do they say things that I think aren't always helpful, people often say things that aren't always true. And one of the most common things people will say that is just not true is this. Oh, they're now an angel. Oh, she's now going to be your guardian angel. Listen, stop insulting the memory of Christians by saying they become angels. We are better than that. We are more than that. What we get to experience through Jesus, the angels long to look. Now, we may just be toddlers trying to describe something that we don't yet fully understand, and that's fine. But what we do know, what, when we know what the Bible says, let's say what the Bible says. 
Let's find our hope in the resurrection, which is a future reality. Look at verse 24. Jesus is going to tell the Sadducees why they're wrong. He says, is this not the reason that you are wrong? So here's the reason they're wrong. He gives them two. They're tied together. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. <laughs> so the answer was verse 25. They're not, those seven brothers and that wife are not going to be married after the resurrection because they're, they're going to be like the angels who aren't married. We're not going to need to be in those kind of relationships in the afterlife, right? But here's why they missed it. They missed it because they didn't know the scripture nor the power of God. Now remember, the Sadducees only trusted the Pentateuch. They only trusted Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so their argument was, that those books didn't speak about the resurrection. It's why they pointed to Deuteronomy 25 in their question. But much of the rest of the Hebrew Bible does speak about these things. And so they, not, they don't know the scriptures because they're not relying on the full account of God's word to them. They've missed it. They've missed out on what God was doing in the rest of the Old Testament. So let's just quickly survey a couple of places, three, in the Old Testament where we see this. One is in Job 19. Now, let me just set this up for us because this is helpful. Job 19, or Job, the, the full story of Job, is a story about a man, an ancient story about a man who remained faithful to God during great tribulation. Right? It's a long, long story. Uh, it's kind of an epic poem. That's the, way that it's, that's the way that it's written. And it's ancient. While not part of the first five books of the Bible, Job's story dates back to the time of Genesis. Job, Job's story goes back beyond Moses. It's back beyond the time of the law. And he believed in resurrection. Job 19, verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. What does Job say? Job says my flesh will die and be destroyed. That's, that's death. That's physical death. And yet in my flesh, I shall still see God. That's resurrection. So going all the way back in the book of Job to the time maybe even of Abraham or beyond, we have testimony of belief in the resurrection. Fast forward to the time of the prophets when the people of God are in a disobedience before him and their judgment is being pronounced before the exile. Isaiah says in Isaiah 26, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy for your dew is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. During Israel's prophesied judgment, the hope of the resurrection was sure. Yes, judgment was coming, Israel, because of your disobedience. But one day, the ground will give up her dead. The earth will give birth to the dead. Fast forward again to the time of the exile. Daniel is in Babylonian exile. And in Daniel chapter 12, receives a vision from the Lord. And this is what he sees. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to the shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. My, let me implore you today, don't just see resurrection as a New Testament idea. The New Testament 
is the confirmation of resurrection for us. But resurrection is an ancient idea. It is an Old Testament idea. It is a prophetic idea. God has promised that the grave will give up her dead. And the people of God have held to this truth. Believing that one day, even though we die, we will be raised from the dead. Trust this word today, my friend. Trust it. Don't doubt it. Don't be a Sadducee. He says, well, we just know too much now to believe that somehow the dead. Listen, all who have gone into the grave will one day rise. And the people of God have believed this from the beginning. But Jesus, I love what Jesus does here, how he answers the Sadducees. Verses 26 and 27, he's going to provide evidence then for what he tells them in verse 25. Evidence of the resurrection. And in his kindness, instead of answering from Job or Isaiah or Daniel, knowing his audience, he answers them from Exodus. He answers them from the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Verse 26, and as for the dead being raised, Have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but God of the living. You are quite wrong. Resurrection, Jesus says, is a reality because God is the God of the living. He looks back to, he says, they didn't have chapter and verse back then, right? So the way that they would refer to things in the Old Testament, they would just say, in the part of. And so he says, don't you remember what in the books of Moses we read in the part about the bush? So, so Moses' encounter in Exodus with the, the burning bush, don't you remember about that? And how he says he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How can he be present tense, the God of people who had died centuries before? He is the God of those people. Sadducees, you believe he's the God of those people. And those people still exist with God now and will one day be raised. Resurrection is a reality for all. When I preach funerals and we go to a graveside, I... My funerals are often different. Sometimes I'll preach the same text at funerals. But when we get to the graveside, I always say the same thing. Don't ask me to say something different. This is what I'm going to say. Okay? Because I think it's helpful for people. We go out there and we're, we're going to put the casket in the ground. This is going to be the place that family and friends come back and visit. Uh, it's a place where if it's one of the larger uh, cemeteries, it's a place where hundreds, maybe thousands of people have, have buried their loved ones. And I always begin by saying this. In our society, we call this a final resting place. But as Christians, we know that is not true. And here's why we know that is not true. Because Jesus tells us in John 5, he says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus in John 5 speaks of the reality of the resurrection for all people. And just like we saw in Daniel, there's there's two categories of that resurrection. Daniel says some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. Jesus says those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. They're all saying the same thing. Everyone will experience the resurrection, but some will experience the resurrection in Christ, 
And some will experience the resurrection outside of Christ. And if you hear nothing else I have to say today, friends, hear this. Resurrection is a future reality, and you want to experience it in Christ. Because it is only experiencing it in Christ, having in this life placed your faith in Jesus alone for the remission of your sins, that you will experience the kind of hopeful resurrection and eternal state that Jesus speaks of when he says the resurrection of life, because there is also a resurrection of judgment for those who are relying on their own good works, for those who are relying on their own ability to save them before God or even denying that God exists. They will stand before God outside of Christ and their resurrection is a resurrection to eternal judgment. Now the resurrection is essential to Christian belief. We categorize doctrine here, if you're new with us, in three categories, first, second, and third tier. So this is very helpful to us as a congregation. First tier are the things that make Christians Christians. Second tier are the things that make Nansman River Nansman River. Third tier are the things that we can disagree on as a congregation and also get along and be happy together. Res- future resurrection is first tier. The fact that Jesus will one day return and that the grave will give up her dead is first tier, meaning to believe this is to be a Christian. To not believe this is to not be a Christian. And Paul makes that argument in 1 Corinthians 15. So I want to show it to you. It's a little bit of a lengthy passage, but I want to show it to you. Starting in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So there were people in the church at Corinth who were believing there was no resurrection of the dead. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ is the first fruit, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things into subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected, is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who puts all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So that was a lot of passage. Hear the argument that Paul is making. If we, deny, if we become Sadducees and deny in, in somehow our brilliance and somehow in our you know, ex- enlightened way of thinking, we deny the resurrection, then what we're really denying is that Jesus was resurrected. And if we deny that Jesus is resurrected, hear me, we should go home. We should sell this property. 
We should disband the church. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we are wasting our time this morning. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, then so will you. If Jesus did rise from the dead, then so will all of us. Some to resurrection of life and others to resurrection of judgment. So what? Faith in Christ alone allows us to look, this is a key word, joyfully towards the resurrection of the dead. When I get to the point of so what in writing sermons, I always try to think about how this passage affects people. And I always have many ways that I can go with a point of application. I typically only have time for one point of application. There are many that can be drawn. But this is the one that I want to draw today. This is intended to be, for the Christian at least, a joyful sermon. It should be joyful to you. I I recognize there may be some trepidation in your heart to not know the future. Some of us hate not knowing the future. Trusting in the reality of the resurrection, but not really knowing everything there is to know about, much about what there is to know about the end. And, And not being married anymore in it. And not being able to experience the pleasures of marriage in it. And yet, it's still, we're still called to be joyful in it. I always read John 5 at gravesides, and then I always read John 14. And in John 14, Jesus says this, let not your heart be troubled. The opposite of letting your heart be troubled is being joyful, right? So Jesus is saying, be joyful. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus alone is the way for us to experience resurrection with a joyful heart. Jesus alone is the way for us to anticipate resurrection with a joyful heart. Jesus alone, the way, the truth, and the life, is the only way for us to do this. Christian, have joy in your heart knowing that one day you will be resurrected to life. For those of you who are not Christians, who have never trusted in Jesus. Hear me, faith alone in Christ is the answer. Trusting that Jesus has paid for your sins is how you cannot let your heart be troubled. (laughs) It's how you can enjoy this joy that we have in knowing that one day Jesus will return for us. Else we're speaking of this same reality, the reality of the resurrection. The apostle Paul writing in 1 Thessalonians chapter four says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, writing asleep, he's talking about those who are dead, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this this we declare to you by the word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from the heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpets of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Then notice what he says in verse 18. It's important. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. There is great joy. And great encouragement amongst the saints when we do experience things like loss and death. That we're able to say, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. But we have hope knowing this, that if Jesus was raised from the dead, so 
will we be? Oh, what hope. Oh, what great joy we have in knowing that the resurrection changes everything. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the reality of our hope, for the joy and encouragement that comes in knowing that Jesus will return for his own, that the dead or the grave will give up its dead and that we will stand before you right because of Christ and enter eternal rest with him. Lord, while we may not comprehend what that looks like, Thank you, God, that it is a reality. We pray for those who have not trusted in it. We ask, God, that you would help them by the power of your spirit, be convicted of their sin, and drawn towards new life in Christ. And we worship you now, the God of our resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church family, will you stand with us as we worship him?